If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. You're with Misty Winston on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hey there, and welcome to the Misty Winston Show here on today's News Talk. We have a very special guest today, Professor David Miller. We're not going to mess around today. Um, we have a fantastic conversation uh, with Professor Miller. He just won a, a landmark victory in his uh, fight against uh, Bristol University. Um, so we're uh, just going to jump right into the conversation. Uh, if you would like, you can follow me over on the tweeters at Sarcasm Stardust. Check out the Substack, mistywinston.substack.com. And of course, you can send me an email at mistywinston at tntradio.live. And also, for a complete list of shows and our schedule offered on TNT Radio, simply visit the website tntradio.live we serve up the latest live news and current affairs presented by a host of credible and expert commentators who can separate fact from fiction truth from propaganda right here on tnt listen listen up listen we gotta talk it's what we do best this is today's news talk radio tnt all right. Our guest tonight is Professor David Miller. Uh, Professor Miller is one of the world's leading academic experts on Islamophobia and also specializes in the analysis of state and corporate lobbying. He recently won a significant victory in his battle against Bristol University after being labeled anti-Semitic. It's our favorite word uh, of these days. Uh, and he was fired, but he did win that uh, victory. We're going to talk to him about that and more. Uh, Professor Miller, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's a pleasure. Um, so this victory, as I mentioned, is very significant. And this situation really for you, uh, this didn't just happen. This has been taking place over a course of many years. Um, I think probably uh, this uh, current batch of shenanigans began when you were initially hired. Was it 2019 that you initially were hired at uh, Bristol University? Um, just at the, at the end of 2018, yeah. Okay. And then these attacks almost immediately started on you uh, based on uh, the curriculum and the things that you were, some of the subject matter you were teaching in your classes. Can you just take us through, and obviously I know that this is a big question because this goes back so many years, but can you just take us through a bit of the timeline so that people can have an understanding of uh, some of the, the, some of the things that you've been facing here? Okay. So like I'm, I'm a sociologist and uh, as, as you said, I've, I've studied Islamophobia, I've studied uh, lobbying, meaning corporate lobbying, but also state lobbies in, in particular including the Israel lobby. Uh, and um, the Israel lobby don't like what I do. They uh, regard it as, as being intrinsically anti-Semitic to actually examine the way in which Zionists operate. And so they've attacked me for many years, going back to 2010, really. But the particular incident you're talking about starts in uh, February 2019, when I did a lecture on Islamophobia. And part of that lecture discusses my theory, which I've written about and published about, uh, of the five pillars of Islamophobia, in which one of the pillars uh, is parts of the Zionist movement, i.e. that uh, the Zionist movement is engaged in pushing Islamophobia. And that idea, that theory, comes from research which we'd previously conducted on uh, Islamophobic think tanks, where we discovered that almost all of the top funders of these think tanks in the UK were uh, obscure British charities. And when we looked at them more closely, we discovered that they also funded directly settlements in the West Bank, uh, the IDF, uh, and indeed Jewish supremacist organizations. And we, so we concluded eventually, took us a while to work this out, uh, that these were Zionist foundations, Zionist family foundations, much like in the US where there are foundations funding Islamophobia too. So we, we determined that that's what was happening. Some students, two students took uh, offense. Uh, they complained to an Israel lobby group. They complained to the university. The university rejected that complaint because the lobby group 
uh, wasn't a student. The, the lobby group roped in two uh, others, one from the Union of Jewish Students, which is uh, the uh, Zionist student uh, group in the UK, uh, and one from the uh, Bristol Jewish Society, which is the affiliate of the UJS, the Union of Jewish Students in Bristol. And the, that complaint was accepted because the president at Bristol was a student at Bristol at the time. But of course, not my student, never been to any of my classes, never even so much as it, it later emerged, spoken to anyone who'd ever been in any of my classes. And they made a complaint, it was rejected, they appealed, uh, and after another oh, year or so, an external QC determined that there was nothing that I'd ever said that they complained about, which was in any way anti-Semitic. So I was given a clean bill of health. This is in December, 2020. Six weeks later, I went on a public meeting outside of work and referred to this attack that had been on me over the previous two years, saying, and I'm quoting, uh, I have been attacked and complained about. And those were the words um, which got me fired effectively because then what happened was there's a huge outcry. Uh, more than 100 members of the House of Lords and the House of Commons wrote to the university demanding I be sacked. Uh, Zionist professors at my university, Zionist professors all around the world. Uh, a laundry list of Zionist groups that most people in Britain have never even heard of complained and asked for me to be sacked. And eventually the university did an investigation, found me not guilty of anti-Semitism at all, but nevertheless decided to sack me. And that, so that's, that brings that part of the story to an end. And there's a little bit more to come up to date, which is that the university said they sacked me because my comments had drawn students into controversy, uh, the comments about being attacked and complained about by Zionist students. Uh, and then we went to a tribunal in October last year and uh, at that tribunal, what became clear was that the university's own witnesses conceded that the real reason that I'd been sacked was not because of what I'd said about students, but because the content of my views was anti-Zionist. And that was just too much for them to, to cope with. And therefore, they sacked me specifically because of my anti-Zionist views. And so the court determined not only that they hadn't properly investigated and I'd been wrongly dismissed, but that the reason they'd sacked me was because of my anti-Zionist views and that anti-Zionist views were in the legal terminology of the Equality Act of the UK 2010. My views were worthy of respect in a democratic society and therefore I had been discriminated against, political discrimination against my views. And that's that, that's where we are. And that of course is a landmark view because a landmark decision because it's never been before determined that anti-Zionist views are worthy of respect in the democratic society and that's particularly important for yes for people in, in jobs in the uk who are, who are attacked by their employers but also because uh the key talking point of the zionist regime over the last 40 or 50 years has been that anti-semitism uh, and anti-zionism are the same thing they're indistinguishable now a court has determined that that's not the case so great Yes, and that is yeah, and, and it is a, a genuinely landmark decision, and I think that that uh, kind of leads me into the next point I wanted to make because um, obviously the Israeli lobby approaching students not surprising uh, here in the United States we're very very familiar <laughs> with the power of the Israeli lobby uh, they essentially own our government so uh, but it seems as though that power is waning in recent days I think in particular since October seventh we have seen the way that the uh, Zionist narrative and the way that Zionists in general are perceived has definitely shifted um, and I think that that has been very 
interesting to watch that play out. I, I personally think it has a great deal to do with um, the existence of social media and on the ground journalists who are in Gaza, who are able to in real time expose the situation that's happening there. Um, but no doubt that uh, we're seeing the um, the perception of Zionism, we're seeing that perception of those narratives uh, certainly has changed since October 7th. Where do you see the state of uh, the kind of Zionist movement today? Do you see it as also a, a waning power? Uh, yeah, yes, I do. But I mean, let's say, first of all, though, that, uh, of course, that doesn't mean that they don't have power. And that doesn't mean that they won't have many more victories before they're finally defeated and um, defeated. They must be. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, what what you've seen in, in the US in relation to academia, for example, just in the last three months with the, the attacks in Harvard and, and Penn State and uh, and uh, uh, in, in Columbia, various other universities, you know, they, they still can they still exert power. They can still win victories. Uh, and that will happen and that will continue to happen, as been the case in the UK too. But they are, their power is waning. And I think it's waning in a number of different ways. I mean, you, you've sort of referred to some of them there. I mean, in particular, first of all, the whole world sees, you know, the whole world sees. There's a genocide going on and everyone, everybody sees that. Everybody who, who has not got sufficiently strong ideological blinkers sees the children being pulled from the wreckage, sees the dead babies. Everybody knows this. That can't be put back in its box. No one can forget that's happened, and no one will be able to forget. They can't. They can't. They can't fix that. There's no fix for that. And of course, that means that that will have a, a follow through in terms of pressure uh, on governments all over the world. We're already seeing governments taking action. Uh, South Africa, of course, uh, and Brazil, and the the uh, twenty or thirty other countries that have, have come onto the action at the ICJ. But also, of course, that feeds through into the case in Belgium, for example, where the the court case where F-35 parts were uh, indicted and uh, interdicted from, from going to Israel. And there will be many more examples like that. So that, that's one way in which Zionism uh, and the narrative is under threat. Of course, it doesn't uh, necessarily have a straightforward effect on the people who run the US, uh, the people who run the UK, who are themselves not just complicit, but actively engaged in the genocide. Uh, through intelligence overflights by the British and training at the IDF by the British. The direct involvement of the US, of course, is much more significant than, than the UK. And that, that's an ongoing thing. But the, the pressure against that, of course, is mounting. But the the way, the way other two, two ways I think that's important to mention that the Zionist narrative is collapsing is, first of all, through the, the, the not unrelated collapsing of the power of the US empire. So we're in a period where... Avdivka has just been liberated by the Russians uh, and people in the West don't really know what that means, right? But that's an indication, uh, if we if we needed it, that, uh, that the Russians have destroyed three separate NATO put together armies in, in Ukraine. And that's a historic, massive defeat. They're losing also, of course, militarily uh, in, in, uh, in Gaza and indeed in, in the, the region. And part of the reason for that is not just the weakness of the Israelis, who of course have to be propped up by American power, but the weakness of the Americans themselves. The Americans have expressed fear about taking on Ansarallah, the government of one of the poorest nations in the world, uh, because they know, and they, they, they express this openly through the pages of the New York Times, they know that the boats in the Red Sea and in the Mediterranean are sitting targets. They're not any more much vaunted projection of US naval power. They are sitting targets for Ansarallah's weapons and, and missiles. 
and, and the, the Americans know which weapons they've got because they supplied them to the Saudis before the weapons were taken from the Saudis with the defection of the, the uh, Yemeni army to Ansarallah. So there's an indication here that, that not just that American power is waning by the day, which we can see from the outside, but that the Americans know that their power is waning and that, that they are reluctant to get involved and to be pulled into and sucked into an assault on the northern border on, uh, on Hezbollah in, in uh, Lebanon. So that's, that, that's, the, the, that's the other way in which I think it's, it's important to say that the Zionist narrative is collapsing. And the third way, very quickly, uh, I already sort of alluded to it, is that they're losing militarily in Gaza. And uh, they, 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 can't, they can't destroy Hamas. There is no such thing as destroying Hamas. The more people they kill, the more Hamas will be stronger in the future. Yeah. Yes. And, and I mean, indeed, they they have don't seem to have been able to to point to the the uh, what they would call the elimination of any uh, um, single Hamas leader, with the exception of Salah al Aruri, who they had to bomb in Beirut because they can't they can't actually reach any of them in, in Gaza. And that shows that the weakness. And of course, everyone's seen the the footage, haven't they? I, I imagine on Telegram and other places of these um, young men with barefoot or sandals running up to Merkava tanks and putting bombs on them to destroy them. I mean, it, it's an extraordinary turn of events that this, what, what should we call them, a barefoot army, Qasem brigades, the Al-Quds brigades, uh, and the other eight or nine armed factions in Gaza are, are beating the IDF. And if the Americans were to pull out, then they would collapse. And that's the, that's the trajectory. They're going to collapse. Yes, 100%. And listen, that's what I, I mean. Uh, if the United States uh, ended its funding and arming of Israel today, within a matter of a couple of weeks, I think that the situation would be over. Uh, there's no yeah. way that Israel can continue without the aid and support of the United States. And that's been clear for many years now. I mean, we're sending them nearly $4 billion a year just because. I mean, that's we just send them all kinds of money and weapons on a regular basis. So, um, And I think that you're right. I think that the uh, what's been so um, interesting about watching this play out is the idea that it's really is it's really exposing Israel as a paper tiger, right? Um, uh, you know, they yeah. they put on all this bluster and they puff up their chests and they pretend to be so strong, uh, but when it really came down to it, they were overtaken uh, very easily. Although I'm not convinced that that wasn't allowed to happen, it seems very suspicious to me. I'm not sure how you feel about that, but um, it seemed very suspicious to me that suddenly security cameras were down and it took hours for them to respond and all of those things. Um, um, I, I could be convinced either way, but I think it's certainly suspect. But uh, watching the way that this has played out since then, and as you mentioned, it's uh, some guys barefoot with some, you know, homemade, you know, weaponry that they're desperately trying to fight. And it really just shows uh, that, um, you know, uh, as I said, Israel is a paper tiger. It really has no uh, capacity to fight them on the ground. Now, can they bomb them from far away and cause a bunch of death and destruction? Of course. But hand-to-hand -hand combat, I think, on the ground, that kind of urban guerrilla warfare, uh, they are losing uh, Measurably. And I think that that's a, a very significant thing to watch and to examine that as it's playing out, because it, it not only does it expose Israel, but I think it also exposes the weakness of the United States. And you're absolutely right. The United States empire is an empire in decline. There is no question about it. It will absolutely. Um, uh, uh, and it, I think it's almost irretrievably broken at this point. Um, and that is also a little bit terrifying to me because um you know, we've seen empires collapse before, uh, none as big as the United States, I don't think, and certainly none as heavily armed. <laughs> and I think that that's a little bit, uh, that's a little terrifying, uh, because I think that as we're a, a wounded animal backed into a corner, almost certainly we will lash out irrationally, and that could end up bad for a lot of people. So listen, we got to take a quick break. Hang tight. We're going to be right back here on today's News Talk. TNT's James Freeman. Now, at the moment, 
Um, the WHO operates in an advisory capacity globally. But all of that will change if amendments to the international health regulations go through, combined with the ratification of a new global pandemic accord. Um, it started off being called as a treaty, but they thought that would frighten everyone. Um, so they now called it a pandemic accord, but it is an international treaty. And if it goes through, it will give the WHO legal powers over all of its members. James Freeman on today's News Talk TNT. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. The Net Zero Con will leave millions of citizens dependent on state handouts. It isn't a theory. It's an agenda. There is no climate emergency. On air 24-7. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. We are here with Professor David Miller. We're talking about his landmark victory over Bristol University um, after he was uh, sacked, fired for being uh, quote unquote anti-Semitic. Again, my favorite word right now, everybody's anti-Semitic. Uh, if you dare to speak out against genocide, somehow you're anti-Semitic. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that because I feel like there is, um, over the course of the past several decades, the Zionist movement has done a very, very good job of shielding itself with Judaism, um, with pretending that Zionism equals Judaism. And the two things are incredibly different. Zionism, of course, is a political ideology, and it is inherently genocidal by nature, I think, if you examine uh, the way that it's been constructed. Judaism is a thousands-year-old religion that has nothing at all to do with Zionism, but they have conflated the two, um, uh, as I said, in, in, in essence, to use Judaism as a shield to protect itself from criticism. Um, would you agree with that? And and, and can you explain uh, the very stark difference between the two? Because I feel like there are still a great deal of people. Obviously, I think the TNT audience is um, uh, very well informed on this issue. But for anybody who may not be aware um, uh, of what Zionism is, when it was created, all of those things, I know that you're quite the expert on this. So can you explain uh, the very stark difference between the two? Well, I mean, the Zionists um, want to say that they uh, have a tradition which goes back thousands and thousands of years and that they they come from Judea and Samaria, as they call parts of the West Bank. Uh, and that it was their land and it was given to them by God and all that stuff, right? But of course, the Zionist movement didn't start and wasn't created until the 1880s uh, at the earliest. Uh, and it was created, of course, in, in Eastern Europe, uh, in Ukraine, in Poland, countries which were part of then, of Poland or Ukraine. Or, uh, well, of course, Ukraine was created later. Uh, and it's, an, it's largely a secular nationalist ideology. And the main two factions of, of Zionism when it was created were on the one hand, labor Zionism, 
which had various leftist factions involved, including some regarded themselves as Marxists. Uh, and then on the right, there was, a, there was um, revisionist Zionism, which is a kind of far right, incipient Nazi uh, uh, ideology. And, and I, I mean, I, we, we do a show called Palestine Declassified uh, uh, every week. And very early on, I think in April last year, we did an episode on Ukraine. And I, I, I didn't know this at the time, but I was shocked in doing the research for this about the affinities there were between Nazism in Ukraine and, and revisionist Zionism. And indeed, Jabotinsky, who comes from, came from Ukraine, was brought up and lived in Odessa, uh, made a deal, famously made a deal with uh, this uh, proto-Nazi, Simon Petliura, who was responsible for pogroms against the Jews and the, the deaths of thousands of Jews, was in fact assassinated in Paris by a Russian anarchist uh, because of his crimes against the Jews, the Jewish Russian anarchist, and because of his crimes against the Jews. And, and Jemotinsky made a deal with this guy. And, they, and he even said, you know, it'll be on my tombstone. This is the guy who made the deal with the Nazi. Uh, and and that's that's the two factions, the main two factions. But of course, what you then have later on in, in, in the development of Zionism is a, is a sort of religious Zionist faction, which comes to be become which becomes more and more important but even back in 1929 uh in uh in or jerusalem as it's called there there was an attempt to to push the muslims out of the al-aqsa mosque and to uh, raise the mosque and to create the third temple which is part of the religious uh, mythology of religious zionists so the religious part of it has been a part and has become more and more important. Uh, but, but nevertheless, this is about taking Judaism, as you say, uh, and pushing it towards a particular conception of one, the history of the Jews, and two, the manifest destiny of the Jews as they would they would see it, which is, of course, is to, to have the only rights to not just uh, Al-Quds and Jerusalem, but to the whole of uh, greater Israel. Now, maybe I ought to explain also, because I think people don't understand this either, um, that, that when we talk about the the Israel lobby and the Zionist movement, what what they are what they are after is not just that they want a Jewish state in the territory of historic Palestine, British Mandate of Palestine. They want Greater Israel. They want uh, they want to have an expanded territory, and that doesn't just mean they want all of the territory of historic Palestine. It means that they want Syria and Lebanon and Jordan. And part of Egypt and almost all of Iraq and even part of Turkey uh, in the north. They want that's what they want. There is this is an expansionist uh, imperialist ideology, and that's why it's difficult to think about this purely in terms of the the influence of what's called the Israel lobby in the U.S. or in the U.K. Because the the the, the ambitions of of Israel are much grander than just influencing U.S. policy, just influencing U.K. policy. They're about creating their own empire and that means of course that they will turn against it, uh, 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 the UK or the US if they think it um, suits their purpose. You can already hear this in the statements of Ben Gavir and Schmotrich in, in the current government who are of course the, the far right elements of the of the government who say you know we, we don't need America. We yeah. Don't need America. <laughs> Benjamin Netanyahu has been very clear about that too. And, uh, and they're even saying we don't want American yep. aid, right? Now, what, what is that Which apart, is from, insane. apart from craziness, right? Yes, it's crazy, yeah. <laughs> but it expresses their determination and their strategy of maximalist Zionism, which is about expansion. 
and and people need to understand that it's not so that that's why they're per they were perfectly happy to bomb the USS Liberty. That's why they were perfectly happy to steal all the, the Americans' nuclear secrets and make their own nuclear bomb. That's why they were perfectly happy to conduct armed operations on the streets of London and other British cities in the 1940s. That's why they were perfectly happy to assassinate Najee Al Ali in 1987 in Knightsbridge in London. Uh, and and uh, at the cost of which Margaret Thatcher famously shut down the Mossad station as a result. So there's an indication there that the, that the Israelis are not really the kind of tame or even the the wild attack dog of U.S. imperialism and, and U.K. imperialism. They are to some extent, but they have all they also have their own imperial ambitions, and, and that's a key thing that we need to understand. And that helps us to understand, I think. Also, the relationship between Judaism and Zionism, because it's a, this is about an imperialist ideology built on top of uh, the remnants of, of or elements of of Judaism. Yes, and I think that it's really important to bring uh, to bring up the expansionism because to me that's super interesting because uh, there's been a lot of finger pointing at the likes of Vladimir Putin or even the Arab countries that they want to expand. And again, I think that's classic projection. Uh, accuse others of that which you are guilty of. And I think that you know that's a very um, uh, it's an old tactic to use, but we're seeing that across the board. And I think that so many people are unaware of the greater greater Israel plan. They have no idea um, about the, the the Zionist mission there and about the idea that they are they want to take over the likes of Lebanon and Syria and things like that and that that to me I think is just um it really shows the uh, absolute failure of western media if uh, if the western media was covering this in any real and substantive way and as Julian Assange once said every lie of the past 50 years has been a result of media lies uh, this is yet another example because if this was covered in any real and substantive way uh, western populations would be aware of this situation and they would be obviously opposed to it um, and again you know populations don't want to go to war they have to be lied into them so um uh it's very frustrating to watch that play out it's very frustrating for me as somebody who um you know uh, uh studies the media quite extensively studies the way propaganda works quite extensively to see the way that that is used time and time again so effectively um uh to bring us into these situations of war and to bring us into these situations of, of genocide again i know that you know the likes of bernie sanders are uh hesitant to call it a genocide which is so ridiculous to me that he is unable to use uh, that word. It is very clearly a genocide. There is no, in my opinion, and again, I'm just uh, some chick in Ohio who hosts a radio show, but I think that uh, many experts have agreed. I think that it is really, any anybody objectively looking at the situation can see that this would easily qualify as a genocide. So watching that propaganda play out and watching people, although as we mentioned earlier, um, that, that veil is starting to be lifted. And I think a lot of people are starting to recognize the game that's being played, but it is still uh, very frustrating as we're watching, as you mentioned earlier, the bodies being pulled out from underneath rubble. All of this is avoidable. And so that's a very frustrating thing to watch play out. So we got to take another quick break. Hang tight. We're going to be right back here on today's News Talk. TNT Radio News. We are your station for news. News. For TNT, this is James O'Neill. U.S. federal prosecutors have charged Takeshi Ebisawa, a 60-year-old alleged leader of a Japanese organized crime syndicate, with attempting to sell weapons-grade nuclear materials to Iran. Mei Lin, a 41-year-old Chinese-born businesswoman based in Papua New Guinea, was arrested in Brisbane for her alleged involvement in a drug smuggling operation using a black flight to transport 71.5 kilograms of methamphetamine valued at $15 million from Papua New Guinea to Australia. Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all major social platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. TNT Radio.
We are back with Professor David Miller. We are talking about um, his landmark win over Bristol University over claims of uh, anti-Semitism. He was fired from Bristol University. Uh, he did win that case, which is a fantastic victory, uh, in my opinion. I'm a free speech activist and Assange activist. So uh, when I learned that you won this case, I was very excited. We don't get a lot of wins these days. Uh, so I was very happy to see that you won this case. And as you mentioned earlier, this doesn't mean that uh, the Zionist movement is dead. It doesn't mean that they're not going to continue to fight that there aren't going to be more victories. Um, but I do see that their power is starting to wane. And I think that that's something that, uh, you know, we need to hold in positivity and, and continue the fight, um, obviously, for the people of Palestine. But just generally speaking, I think Zionism is a repugnant ideology. Um, uh, you know, I'll probably get a lot of hate for saying that, too. I've not I've said it before. So um, but yeah, I think that and, and again, your case was quite evidently a an issue of free speech. And we have seen the numerous ways that free speech has been at under attack across the globe. I mean, obviously, I've mentioned Julian Assange several times. His persecution continues to play out. Um, also, the targeted assassinations of over 120 journalists in Gaza, uh, which has been horrific to watch that play out. Um, but speaking of Assange, he once said, and I quote, censorship is always cause for celebration. It is always an opportunity because it reveals fear of reform. It means that the power position is so weak that you've got to care what people think, end quote. We seem to be, uh, at least from my observation, at um, a bit of a crossroads on the issue of free speech. Are you hopeful? On the on on the issue of free speech. Well, I mean, I think that um, no would be <laughs> would be the answer to that. But, Same. But look, there's, there's, a, there's a battle here. I mean, I think that. Yeah. I mean, the, these ideas like freedom of speech, academic freedom, freedom to organise, the idea that the state might be used to. Uh, to diminish poverty or inequality, to tackle questions of gender, race and ethnicity. Those are ideas which uh, belong to the social democratic era. Uh, now, in the US, that you know, roughly speaking, that was between the 1930s and 1980. In the UK, it was uh, between 1945 and 1979. And that era is gone and it's not coming back. Uh, and so the idea that for example, trade unions in the UK or the US are going to have a major role in social reform seems to me much less the case than it, than it, than it was 30 years ago. Even, even in the period when there was massive social unrest which, in which the trade unions were involved. And that, so I think we, we have to, to, to recognise that we're in a new, new era. Uh, and that era has put paid to the ambitions of many on the left yes but also liberals who thought that you know that these th these ideas meant things that, that so the freedom of speech meant something that of course everyone agreed with freedom of speech but but, we, but not everyone agrees with that anymore of course that freedom of speech has now been weaponized by uh, those in power through their massive investment in the disinformation apparatus uh, uh, as they call it so that so on the one hand the, the state uh, and it's uh, uh, it's kind of hangers on in the think tank world uh, have this massive propaganda apparatus to convince us that uh, Putin is bad, that uh, Iran's terrible, that China's the enemy, or whatever is the latest enemy du jour. Uh, but on top of that, they have this massive investment in organizations, usually NGOs, but not always, sometimes attached to universities, in the disinformation apparatus, who, which is tasked with rooting out disinformation wherever it's found, by which they mean uh, enemy propaganda. So anyone who criticizes the propaganda coming from the main 
state apparatus is is engaged in disinformation is part of enemy propaganda so you and i are putin apologists or <laughs> I, I don't get Chinese uh, apologies much. I get, I get, uh, I'm in the pockets of the Iranian regime, uh, or you know, I'm uh, an apologist for Bashar al-Assad, or any of those kinds of things. You know, I, I, one of the investigations at, at the university uh, uh, into me in relation, I mean, which was added on to the the anti-Semitism charge, was that I had somehow uh, might be guilty of taking money from Russia for uh, paying for uh, for a website to be registered. Uh, with with the academic registrar in the UK, I mean, completely bonkers. But of course, given the idea given to the university by a journalist from uh, the mainstream press, so there's this massive apparatus of the disinformation uh, uh, organisations which tries to track disinformation, tries to, to spot Russian bots and uh, you know Iranian influence in in London and whatever else it is. And of course, this is itself, uh, you know, as is per perfectly apparent, a propaganda apparatus. And of course, the the, the the work that Mike Ty, Matt Tybee and uh, Schellenberg and all those have been people have been doing on the Twitter files, you know, de demonstrates that very very clearly. But there's a there's a huge apparatus of, of it's kind of it's kind of counter propaganda. It's a kind of counter propaganda apparatus, uh, and we need to understand that now. So that means that of course that the whole concept of free speech has been weaponized, uh, so that, that there's no there's no real so all the activism most of the activism on free speech which mainly comes from the right. It is in, inevitably partial and tends not to reach across to, to to the other examples that there are. I know that Glenn Greenwald's always banging on about this, and you know, more power to him to do that. But and and but there's a real difficulty here in, in dealing with those issues. And of course, what's ha then happened uh, is, for example, in the in the US, there's a split on the the US right. I mean, I, I never thought I would see the day when. Someone love the the uh, stature, whatever you think of him, Tucker Carlson saying, "We need to invade Israel. We need to take the nukes back. <laughs> we need to stop that." And that's that's not just Tucker Carlson. That's a whole tradition emerging on the American right, which is which is anti-Zionist, and that that in itself I think is very very interesting. And I, I, I'm, I'm hoping not to be incoherent here, but I think overall the argument I'm making here is that we're in a new era, uh, and that the, those old concerns. About freedom of speech, those innocent, more innocent concerns about freedom of speech, are, are have gone, and we have to think about the new world that we're now in. And that means that a new world where there are splits on the left and the right over these questions, and also where uh, we, we're moving into an era of multipolarity, and where where what you you said, you know, the the empires when they're down, they might lash out, and of course they will. The British will do it as well as the Americans. It'll be nasty for the victims. Over there, but also be nasty for us, you know, for us who are behind enemy lines, as it as it were. Uh, but so we're going to have to, on the left, or or if we're free speech activists, reorient ourselves to understand that Russia and China and Iran and some of the other BRICS countries are going to be much more powerful players. And so, when when I say I'm not hopeful about freedom of speech, I think really that that notion of freedom of speech is dead, and we're in a in a new world which is just emerging, and we're barely getting our, 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 our head around it. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that, actually. And I think that the uh, the technology age has really uh, pushed us in uh, that direction even faster, even further. And I think the, the splits on the left and the right, holy cow, 
could you be more accurate? Because as somebody who's been advocating for Julian Assange, it's been very frustrating for me um, as I, I, I'm often lumped in with the left. I don't like labels. I don't like necessarily necessarily to label myself politically, but I am often lumped in, in with the left, which is fine. Um, but I, it, it, I, it, to me, it seems as though the issues of free speech, the issues of anti-war, all of those things were solidly leftist issues. And we've seen over time this very strange shift taking place um, where it is no longer a leftist issue to care about uh, the freedom of speech. And I think that that's so interesting. It's frustrating, but also interesting. And, you know, you mentioned the right, somebody like Tucker Carlson. Also, we see Candace Owens coming out of nowhere to speak out against Israel, despite the fact that she works for the Daily Wire, which is run by Ben Shapiro, who is a huge Zionist, a very powerful Zionist. And so I think that that, first of all, I'm not a Candace Owens fans, but kudos to her for having the courage um, to speak up on that. And to, I mean, uh, she's absolutely risking her job by doing it. Um, So kudos to her, but you're absolutely right. There is definitely a split on both sides. And I think that for me, that is why it's so important. And so um, uh, it's really dire for those of us who care about these issues to recognize those sort of single issue coalitions where it, it, I think Chris Hedges talks about this uh, very well, where he says that it doesn't matter. We don't have, uh, there's no permanent enemies. There's no permanent allies. There's just, you know, permanent truth and permanent causes. And I think that that's for as far as like anti-war preventing nuclear annihilation, I'll work with just about anybody, Professor Miller. I don't care who you voted for. I don't care what ism you subscribe to or what books you read or what party you belong to. I don't care. Um, uh, preventing nuclear annihilation feel, feels like a, a pretty big issue, a pretty serious issue to be concerned with. And I think there's um, this uh, this kind of ick factor and there's this kind of, um, uh, uh, there's a stigma around working with people that you disagree with. And I think that that's something we need to get over and we need to get over that very quickly. You don't have to be best pals. You don't have to go out to dinner together. Your kids don't have to have play dates. You don't need to go on vacation. We just need to work together where we have common cause to prevent, uh, you know, again, like something like nuclear annihilation. I feel like that's a worthy cause to to put aside differences and come together where we can. So, um, all right, we're going to take another quick break, but hang tight. We're going to be right back here on today's News Talk. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Remember Adriana on The Sopranos? Here's how we last saw her. He's a strong kid, Chrissy. He's tough. Well, she got whacked, but last week, actress Drea DeMatteo was with Megyn Kelly, and the self-proclaimed liberal had some harsh words for those of her political ilk. I really do think that the left is way more um, just angry, and this is supposed to be the hippies and the, you know, the people that really do care about equality and inclusivity, and then all of a sudden they are the ones shutting everything down, shutting everyone out, condemning freedom of speech, condemning everything. And she went after her Sopranos on-screen lover, Michael Imperiali. He was condemning some stuff on his Instagram feed that I noticed, and um, like, I remember. I thought that was I thought that was irresponsible. Last year, Imperiali posted on Instagram that he's going to make sure nobody who's a homophobe or a bigot ever watches The Sopranos or any of his work. The left is loony. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT. My name's Stacy. I'm 57, and I was adopted in 2020. We were adopted in 2019. And we were adopted in 2021. We had a house, Um, and it sounds crazy, but it wasn't a home. The one thing that Jake and Emma brought is it became a home. 
When I met Dakota, he had just turned 14. You weren't there for the first this and the first that. I missed the first words, but we got a lot of other firsts. I'm watching her say, oh my God, I cannot believe I got my license. And she's like, I passed. And I'm like, girl. <laughs> See them grow. It is. They chose to love us. They didn't have to. They chose us. Family. You and you. Kids in the middle. What I thought was a complete life was nowhere near complete. <laughs> but it is now. Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. This is the Misty Winston Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we are here joined by Professor David Miller. We're having a conversation, uh, a kind of a more general conversation. We did start off talking about his uh, lands, uh, I'm sorry, not landslide, his uh, significant victory over Bristol University, um, uh, uh, over his firing for being so-called anti-Semitic. Uh, a very significant victory. Um, we've seen the way that uh, there have been attacks on uh, academics here in the States, um, Harvard and others. Um, so that's certainly something that will continue, um, but having uh, Professor Miller's win certainly does help to bolster uh, those kinds of things moving forward. So um, I, I know that you also speak a lot about the way that Zionism fuels Islamophobia. So I was hoping that we could spend this last segment here talking about that because um, I feel like that is such a significant conversation that really isn't being had. And I think that there is such a, an outpouring of Islamophobia and has been for some time. This is something that they have been fueling for a very long time in their in their preparation to do the Greater Israel Plan. Uh, but can you just talk a little bit about that and explain to people how the Zionist movement is in fact fueling Islamophobia? Islamophobia. Sure. So, I mean, this is the root, really, of the the difficulties I faced. You know, back in 2009-10, we started to do work on um, Islamophobic think tanks in the UK. So these are elite organizations trying to push the government in more and more anti-Muslim directions. Uh, the, the Center for Social Cohesion and the Policy Exchange were the two, which were major at the time. We did work where we tried to dig up information about who funded them. Um, which we got from Charity Commission in the uh, in the UK, which is the regulator. It's like the IRS, which regulates uh, um, uh, non-profits in the U in the US. Uh, and so we we trilled through a lot of these files, and we found that uh, most of the top funders uh, were uh, these obscure charities, named usually named after an individual. And when we looked at them, it turned out these were, you know, uh, rich individuals from the business class. Uh, who had started these foundations and they, amongst the other organizations they gave to were, you know, they would give money directly to the settlements to, an, say, for example, an organization called the Jerusalem Foundation, which is engaged in uh, uh, illegal activities across the Green Line, or to the IDF. There's an organization in the UK, uh, which is the UK equivalent of the Friends of the IDF, which exists in the US, or, or ex even to uh, Jewish supremacist organizations like, for example, there's a sect called Chabad, which is quite often funded by these people. So we, re we realized after a while that these were Zionist foundations. We hadn't understood that at the time. And that's what led us to say, well, look, actually, amongst the things which pushes Islamophobia are the Zionists. And so we, we had the Zionists, we had the neocons, we had the far right, of course, the, the new far right, the counter-jihad movement, etc., across the whole of Europe and indeed in, in the US. Uh, and of course, the, the main the main thing which pushes Islamophobia, we argued, was the, was the counter-terrorism apparatus of the state. And there these other social movements surrounding that which pushed the counter-terrorism apparatus more and more in, in anti-Muslim directions. 
so that that's what we started with okay and and then that led me to do um research on the zionist movement for the first time uh, you know specifically and i did more and more on that we started with the israel lobby and then we moved out to the other elements of the, the zionist movement but as a result of that trajectory we started to find out more stuff which we hadn't had any idea about uh in the beginning so amongst the things that that uh, we discovered were for example that the the idea of islamic terrorism was something which didn't exist in the 1970s and it only really became a thing in the 1980s and we tried to track it back to where it had come from and we discovered that the first place, the first terrorism conference where there was a panel, a specific panel on Islamic terrorism, uh, which was chaired by a guy called Bernard Lewis, who's a, an Orientalist and uh, Zionist ideologue, previously a uh, British intelligence officer. Uh, and his, and his, his kind of acolytes, uh, they, they, they were referred to often as the Gang of Four, each of them more anti-Muslim than the last. And they did this conference session in 1984 in Washington DC uh, for an institute called the, uh, the Jonathan Institute. Now, have you come across the Jonathan Institute? The Jonathan Institute was named after Jonathan Netanyahu, who was killed in the Israelis raid on Entebbe. And his brother, of course, was the one who set it up. And that's a guy called Benjamin Netanyahu, which uh, of course everyone is familiar with. So he was involved in the, the very beginning in this, this idea that Islamic terrorism was a thing. It wasn't that there were uh, Muslims who were engaged in armed struggle in relation to particular conflicts, colonial conflicts or interpersonal in, in, in or inter-ethnic conflicts. No, this is a, a specific thing to do with Muslim terrorism, which is all the same and can be lumped together. Uh, it was the major threat which faced Western civilization, uh, according to Netanyahu in, in the book which they produced from that conference in, in uh, 1984, Terrorism, How the West Can Win, because of course the West isn't terrorist, it's the... <laughs> Yeah, you get the, the, the idea. So that's that's a key element of, of pushing Islamophobia. And of course, it's not, not just that they were pushing Islamophobia in the abstract. They were pushing Islamophobia to replace the major threat, which was then seen to, to be threatening Western civilization, which is, of course, the Soviet Union. And of course, the Soviet Union then uh, uh, collapses in 1991. And what, what replaces it? The Muslims. And so we, that, that, and that's, that's, that process the ideological process of creating this idea of an amorphous and and uh, and united Islamic terrorism was something which was created by the, by the, by the Zionists. I mean, extraordinary. I had I had no idea of that. Um, you know, when I started this, uh, studying terrorism back in the day, and associated with that, of course, is the term Islamist, which uh, was invented after 1979. Didn't didn't exist before. The term Islamism existed, and it used to mean someone who studies Islam. So a scholar of Islam, but it became uh, a term which which refers to political Islam, and which lumps together all uh, various different Muslim tendencies as if they're one and as if they uniformly threaten the West. So of course you have the Salafists and the Wahhabists uh, of this of Saudi Arabia who are you know who between 2011 and 2023 were fighting with uh, with uh, the Syrian Arab Army made up of other Muslims. Uh, in Syria, you know that that becomes unintelligible if you have this idea of of Islamism of of the Islamist. Uh, that you, it's an I mean, really, it's an unintelligible thing to have the idea that the Islamic Republic of Iran 
uh, and, and of course Saudi Arabia are the same thing. They're not, they're, they are opposed to each other. They are enemies. The Saudis are on the side in many questions uh, with, with the same side as Israel. Although of course they, there's been a, an alleged pause put on normalization uh, uh, according to Saudi statements in the last few weeks. So it, it, this is a, an attempt to, to suggest that, that, is, that Muslims are all the same, they're a common threat. Now, the, the, where does this list come from? Again, we traced it back and Bernard Lewis is in there uh, and there are, it largely comes from people like Bernard Lewis and other Zionist ideologues. There's a little bit of, of input from some French scholars who worked in Afghanistan and indeed uh, who studied the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Uh, and those French scholars, uh, you know, not inconsequentially, also happened to publish some of their early work in in a journal which it transpires, uh, which, which was based in Oxford, which it transpires was actually a CIA front. So the CIA had a little bit of a hand in this, but it was mainly a Zionist invention. So they, that's that's you know, it's not just that we see today Zionist funding directly funding Islamophobia, meaning of course, yes, the elite uh, think tanks. But also, of course, the street movements, people like uh, Tommy Robinson in this country and, uh, and others, uh, and, uh, and of course, people in the, in the US funded directly by Zionists. But so it's, it's not just a question of that. It's also a question of the, the whole apparatus for thinking about the role of Islam in the world has been significantly influenced by the Zionists over very many years. Yes. And I think that that's why this is such because I didn't know any of that either until I um, familiarized myself with your work. And I think that that's why this conversation needs to be had uh, more, more frequently, because so many people are unaware of that history and of how, how all of this came. And I think that there are a lot of people who recognize things like the war on terror and how that's such a vague and broad statement. It's a war on an invisible enemy, um, which those I think are uh, a favorite of uh, Empire. They love invisible enemies because there's never an end game. There's never Oh, we beat that thing because it's invisible. We can't see it. Um, so, but I think a lot of people recognize how that that whole war on terror thing was, uh, you know, ridiculous, and people have come to terms with that. But I think that, and in particular, as we were talking about, I see a lot of that from the right, the Islamophobia. I think that we're seeing. Uh, you know, you have the people like Candace Owens and Tucker Carlson who are speaking out against Israel. But I think that there is a really fervent um, uh, Islamophobia streak uh, on the the kind of more far right. At least in the United States, I'm seeing that. Um, I think that there is some of it on the left. I think that. Um, it's a little less prevalent, but I think that for sure we see it on the, the further uh, ends of the on, uh, the right spectrum, at least in this country. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you too, um, uh, uh, before we wrap up here, um, obviously this victory that you have over Bristol University is a massive uh, uh, win for not just yourself, but uh, I mean for um, other people who are going to be facing these battles in the future. And we've seen numerous people, right? Jeremy Corbyn, Bernie Sanders. I mean, we could go down the list. Claudine Gray from Harvard. I mean, we've seen so many people, um, uh, Roger Waters. We've seen so many people come under these attacks and be labeled as anti-Semitic, um, uh, have attempts to ruin their careers and their lives through that situation. You have now been through that. You're through the other side. Um, how can we more effectively combat these situations when they arise? Well, I mean, I think that's the, that is the lesson, you know, the, of, of my case is that that you know, if that if you approach this, if you are accused of anti-Semitism, and you, your response is to say, "Oh, I I didn't mean to offend you. I didn't mean to upset you. I'm sorry. I didn't." And try and have a, a dialogue with the Zionists. That's you finished. Yeah. You will. They they've destroyed you. And that was, of course, the advice given re repetitively to Jeremy Corbyn by, by his advisors: "Apologize, move on. The news cycle will flow. It'll be gone." It wasn't. 
didn't yeah. go. It didn't go, and of course he was destroyed by it. So you ha you have to say, look, there is no arguing with Zionists. This is a fundamentally racist ideology. They will never come to an accommodation. They simply have to be defeated, and we have to dismantle Zionism as a an ideology. It has to, the, the ideology has to be eradicated. Uh, that, that, that's that's seen as tough and hard line by some people, and of course that was you know, at the University of Bristol. That was one of the things they thought was just you know, just too too much, and that's partly why they they sacked me. But of course, now what's now happened is that the court has declared that though, even those what appear to be hard line statements, I think they're quite reasonable statements about, about Zionism, are themselves protected in UK law. So you know you, you can you can take them on and you can win, and you're not going to win unless you take them on. There is no way to win against the Zionists unless you fight them, and and if you fight, you won't always win, but you can. And we, and we're in a historical period where Zionism's stock is is declining, and yeah. we are going to win many more battles, hopefully sooner rather than later. But we are going to win many more battles. So I, I would say, you know, the, the way to fight Zionism is, is the maximalist maximalism of Zionism is to have a maximalist anti-Zionism, which is like that Zionism is not acceptable. It's a racist ideology. It's inherently and fundamentally genocidal ideology. Always has been. Always will be. And and you know. Everyone now sees that. Millions and millions of people who didn't see it before, who thought David says things a bit too straightforwardly. I'm not quite sure about that. Millions of people now see that the thing, things I've been saying for many years now are just true, just just, just true. And then and now we've got to think, so how practically do we de-Zionize that? And what, what I would say about that, just very briefly, is that look, what happened at the end of the Second World War, as we call it in the US and the UK, it's called the Great Patriotic War, of course, in, in Russia, was that at Yalta, the Allies, the French, the Germans, sorry, the French, the British, the Americans, and the Russians, the Soviet Union, came to a, a, an agreement that they would have to denazify uh, Germany. And denazification didn't just mean putting uh, Her Hermann Goring and Rudolf Hess and von Ribbentrop on trial at Nuremberg. It did mean that, and, we, and from that we get the international, the agreed international humanitarian law with which Israel is now being prosecuted in The Hague. So that's that's important. We have to take Gallant and Netanyahu and Smotrich and Ben Gavir and, and uh, Isaac Herzog, all of them have to go to The Hague. Yes, of course. But there are many, many millions more. Uh, this is what they said about Germany. Many millions of Germans join Nazi organizations. What do we do about them? And in the yeah. case of, of uh, Palestine, Many, many millions of Israeli citizens have joined the IDF, the Shin Bet, the Mossad, the, the military police who have been armed settler militias. What do we do about them? We have to find a way to deal with them. And what they proposed in relation to Germany was denazification. And so what we do in, in relation to Israel is de-Zionization. We have to de-Zionize uh, all of these organizations and, and re-educate people so that they can they are fit to, take, to partake in uh, um, a, a Palestinian state in the future, or you know, and if they if they're not, then they they will, they will have to be either, uh, you know, uh, confined or they will have to leave, and that's 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 just what's going to ha have to happen. But I would also say that look, you need to also have a process of desionization in in the UK and the US. The, the Zionist movement in both of those countries is very strong, amongst the strongest in the world, uh, and, and it has a, a, an incredibly um, negative effect in the, on our politics. It's not just the Israel lobby which does that. It's the fact that there are Zionists throughout 
the hierarchy of the society, yeah. such in, in, in journalism and politics and finance. I mean, across the whole of the society, there are Zionists in, in, in the entertainment industry. Oh, yes. And, and these people are not necessarily and not only in APAC or uh, the Foundation for Defence of Democracies or whatever it is, whatever Israel lobby group you can point to, they're, they're simply threaded throughout the society at the top of Facebook and Google. and Yeah. Uh, and, and so all of that needs to be addressed is essentially what yeah. you're saying. This is going to yes. have to have a, a broad, and, and I apologize, we're un unfortunately out of time. So um, all of that stuff does though need to be addressed. So um, I'm glad that those are uh, things that you're uh, talking about and thinking about because this is not just a surface level thing where we get rid of Benjamin Netanyahu and things are, everything yeah. is fine. So uh, Professor David Miller, thank you so much for taking the time. Again, congratulations on your win against Bristol University. Um, everybody, you can follow uh, David Miller on uh, Twitter at tracking underscore power and check out the website. It is supportmiller.com. Dot org. Again, thank you so much for joining us. Hang tight. We're going to be back with Timothy Shea right after this here on TNT.